Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to Off Air with me, Jane Garvey. And me, Fee Glover. And we are fresh from our brand new Times radio show. But we just cannot be contained by two hours of live broadcasting. So we've kept the microphones on, grabbed a cuppa and are ready to say what we really think. Unencumbered and Off Air. We're coming in a bikini tomorrow. It's even hotter in here than it is in the studio. It is hot. I keep wanting to do an item on how hot it is, and every single day when I suggest it, people just go, yeah. they just sort of look the other way and then <laughs> take up another line of questioning and move on to something else. I but know. it is really weird because on Thursday of this week, and I am a bit of a slave to my weather apps, it's 21 Celsius in London and it's nearly November, and I'm sorry, but that's weird. It is weird. I'm no, I'm with you on wanting to do that, but you're right. There's, we're learning what the looks of the editorial team are, aren't we? Well, every single day I'm going to keep on suggesting. Can we do an item on the weather because it's really hot? I do remember. Maybe you recall a Halloween, probably must be a while ago because I was my kids were young enough for me to be taking them trick or treating when it was also very warm. Must be ten years ago, maybe fifteen years ago, and people did comment about it at the time. But we seem to be back in that sort of weather right now. Anyway, fascinating. <laughs> no, I, I'm serious about this. I think it's it. Apart from the fact that it's playing havoc with my middle-aged female attempts to sleep at night, because I am. I mean, look, I don't want it to be cold in the evening when I'm watching the telly. <laughs> But I would like it to be colder at night. Okay. If anyone's still there, welcome to Offer with me, Fee Glover, and her, Jane Garvey. At any moment, she might strip down to her undies. Oh, dearie me. But I, I'm with you. It's a tad on the warm side. So uh, we had an incredibly busy programme today yeah. because the cabinet was being shuffled uh, by our new Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, and a lot of people we're going into number 10 Downing Street, but not as many coming out. Did you no. notice that? I think he's holding them hostage in there. <laughs> well, I think it's going to be one of the biggest stories of our times when it finally comes out. We kept on saying, you know, James Cleverley's gone in, Suella Bravman's gone in, Therese Coffey's gone in, and they just weren't coming out. No. So as we speak... There's something funny going on in there. Have yeah. you ever been inside Downing Street? I have. Yes, it's I've a strange been, old yeah, place, isn't I've been it? I've to a couple of receptions there. Oh, yes. And there is Who were something, you received by? Uh, Gordon Brown. 
yeah. And there is something extraordinary about walking up that stairs with all of the portraits of the former prime yeah. ministers uh, just hanging there. I, I always, um, I mean, it doesn't happen to me very often being in those kind of places, but I always have to catch myself because I think, oh, I've seen this on a film. That's how we know it, isn't it? We've seen it in, you know, film Love with... Actually. Exactly, with Hugh Grant. That's the film, isn't it? <laughs> then you know that that's not actually the real one. You've seen a very clever yeah. mock-up. That remains one of the great, terrible, but you find you do find yourself watching it on an almost annual basis. I haven't watched it for years. Haven't you? No. It's still terrible. And there's some really dubious plot lines in it now which do not bear the Well, there's one time. about the porn couple, isn't there? There's, there's the porn actors, yeah, one of whom is time. Martin Freeman. Well, it's better than the one where Andrew Lincoln plays a stalker. That's absolutely terrible. Okay, that's so really no, awful. That's not going to be. On and my then there's list the other terrible film I watch every year with Cameron Diaz and Kate Winslet. The, hol- the holiday. The holiday. One. Yeah. God, that's yeah. I love that, but that's but that doesn't make sense because now yeah. Airbnb's taken over and you wouldn't have to do that type of a home swap, no, would you? No, you really wouldn't. No. no, you'd just be rating and reviewing endlessly. Anyway, as we speak, it's just after five o'clock on Tuesday night, and so we don't know all about um, the cabinet, um, how it looks under Rishi Sunak. And um, you will find out, though, if you pay attention to Times Radio, because they'll certainly be the first to tell you. Yeah, it was, I, I think it's easy to be cynical, isn't it, uh, about the, the kind of... Um, it's easy to be cynical now, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> about the process of politics. But it's, a, it's an important cabinet, Jane, isn't it? It's a cabinet of all the talents. Available. <laughs> okay. So you're right. Uh, Stay with Times Radio and you'll hear everything that you need to know. Uh, We love hearing from you all, so do continue to get in touch on email, janeandfee at times.radio, or you can tweet us at Times Radio using the hashtag, I didn't know we had one, hashtag janeandfee, and don't forget to follow us if you can and leave a review of the podcast wherever it is you're listening to us right now. Well, that'd be very kind, but I mean, everybody's busy, so, you know, put it on a list and see whether you can, I think would be what I'd say about it. Now, we didn't get to cover because we were so busy in the programme all of our other stories that we picked from the newspapers. You've got one that I'm quite glad we didn't have to talk about on air because actually I think it just sounds really bizarre. It's a very important story this. Cat skin banjo is out of tune with the Times. It happens to be from the Times this story but wherever I'd seen it I'd have picked it and I do think it's very very interesting. Um, It's about the elongated three-stringed banjo. Uh, it's, It's bloody awful by the way. It has a piercing twangy note and it's the instrument played by Geisha. Geisha? Geisha. In um, their tea houses and as the accompaniment to folk songs and classical plays. <laughs> so it's it's Japanese. It's extraordinarily important to Japanese culture. Uh, they're traditionally made of mulberry wood, sandalwood, silk and ivory. But the most important ingredient is the hide that's stretched over the sound box. Oh, I hope you're not going to say that it is actually. It is the cured hide of the domestic cat. Now, I include this because... How can you bring this story to well, me knowing that I'm still in my grieving time? I know, time? For, for Punky Ponk. Um, <laughs> pinky Ponks. Your cat, your Pinky Ponks, sorry. Um, yes, I'm sorry. I, I'm including it partly because my um, rescue cat, Tabby Dora, is once again in disgrace after last night disguising herself behind a plant pot, a potted plant. It, it turns out actually rather successfully and making an attack, a leaping attack on a friend of mine who'd come round for a small glass of white wine. She just went for her in a way that was completely ungovernable and very unwelcome and just simply something I wish she'd stop. 
It's China. She you can't think. keep doing this. She leaps onto the back of people and clings onto the back of their whatever they're wearing with her teeth. Well, uh, I haven't been round to your house very often, but but no. but when I did, exactly, and I went to, I went to stroke her. And she just attached herself yeah, she's awful. all around my hand. You know, whatever it is, that funny sport in the Olympics where you have to throw some kind of a, 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 a discus. Like I, felt, I felt the need to do that. Do you but think... that doesn't mean I want her to be made into a Japanese banjo. I want to make that absolutely clear. But why don't you get a little recording of the Japanese banjo and just play it gently in the background, see whether or not she gets the message. The problem is, for decades after World War II, professional cat catchers supplied makers... Oh, this is a horrible story. <laughs> Sorry, That's the, a horrible with story. The, ...with the skins of stray cats. But um, attitudes to pets have changed in Japan, and, <laughs> which I'm glad about. And stray cats are, are not... So plentiful. Anyway, let's move on to to something a little nicer. Okay. well, the only other story that I was going to mention uh, from today's news was this wonderful one about how gaming uh, can actually be hugely beneficial to the young mind. So a study out of Vermont University says uh, of 2,000 nine and 10 year olds uh, found that their cognitive function, if they played games on consoles, uh, for more than three hours a day was actually better than those who didn't. And I love that story because it's just, you know, for those of us uh, who've got kids who are, you know, very into gaming, yeah. it's easy to just always, always think about the dark side of it and just the endless get off your, your PS4, get off your... Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. You know, it drives people really mad. So it's always really heartening to see something like that. But also I commend them for the timing during half term. Oh, excellent. That is an absolutely brilliant piece of PR. People have relaxed a few pounds. Oh, my word. I've been happy all By day. By the way, aren't the public transport facilities of London overburdened with half term trippers there's this a, week? There's a lot. Can you all just go home, please? <laughs> no, don't say that, you no, miserable I'm trying, to get, I'm trying to get to work and get home and these bloody kids with their mums and dads all looking at the Tower of London and get off. <laughs> 
I think I wasn't given the means to actually conduct the research properly and it was in an environment where I felt particularly safe. Um, it's not just the university. Uh, as you might be aware, when I was appointed uh, as the first black woman professor, I received a huge number of um, letters, very unpleasant messages and threats and uh, it continues at the University of Bristol, so I didn't particularly feel safe and protected there. So you worked initially, didn't you, at Bath Spa University? Yes. Why would your appointment inspire people to send abusive messages? What, what do you think is the reason for that? Well, I think it's to do with my colour, to be quite blunt. It's to do with the fact that people like me are not expected to hold the, those kind of positions and there's always suspicion attached to the fact that as a person of African descent I wouldn't be able to do uh, historical research to the highest standards. And was that something that was ever muttered either to your face or behind your back amongst your contemporaries, amongst other academics? Well it's never been uh, it's never been uh, something that people would dare say to my face. So it was done through letters. It was done sometimes uh, in discussions where you are asked if you're sure about what you found or if you're sure about this and, uh, this and that uh, um, archival material when actually those uh, archival materials are to be found at the National Archives and you're just relaying the information. Can you tell us what kind of a toll all of that took on you personally? It was very hard uh, for me because I considered myself to be a rigorous historian and, um, and not complacent at all uh, with regard to the, the, the history of colonial, colonial history as a whole. And it was, it was physically difficult, emotionally difficult as well because I was constantly tired and having to justify oneself. It's just something that I wasn't expected to, to have to do as a, as a, as a professor. My understanding um, is that you came to the UK from France because you thought it would be a better, not just working environment, but a better place for you and your family to live. What would you say about that decision now? Well, there's a huge difference between my everyday life and my academic life or public profile because I feel perfectly happy and safe and welcome. It, it happened 22 years ago, I believe. Um, and so this is my home and I feel, I feel good here. Uh, but the academic world and the public uh, platforms are something entirely different because this is where the hostility was the most felt or I felt the most um, unsafe, really. So is it because you are a black woman saying what some people in Britain still find desperately unpalatable. They're just not ready yet to hear about our involvement in slavery. Yes, I think there's that. There's also the fact that I, um, it's the kind of history I do. We, we have been so far taught about conquest, taught about um, uh, abolition, but the, the details about black agency, black liberation and you know, the very, very important details about the whole story, the full disclosure hasn't happened. So when uh, somebody like me is talking about black liberation, people are thinking that I have an agenda when actually these are historical facts. Doesn't every historian have an agenda? I mean, when we think about the amount of history written and interpreted by white men, 
they are only ever approaching it from that perspective. They can't do anything else, can they? Yes, I, I, I strongly believe that history is highly political. But then my agenda is not necessarily what they think it is. My agenda is full disclosure, the good, the bad, the ugly. And we tend to want to talk about the good, as in the conquest and how, you know, Britain conquered the world and made the world a better place. But it's a bit more nuanced than that. How did you find the coverage of the death of Her Majesty the Queen? It was an interesting moment for me. As a, as a historian, I really wanted to, to stay away from that and not be drawn into um, the kind of performative aspect of the whole thing. But at the same time, I'm working on sites of memory. And for me, this was a living site of memory. It's how we are writing the narrative now that would be uh, uh, taught to, to future generation was incredibly important. But at the same time, there's something deeply personal as well. Um, not necessarily as a child of Africa, but as somebody who's who's lost um, parents and who's lost family members and a grandmother in particular, I find it, 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 it might seem contentious to see this, but I find it unbearable to actually look at uh, the, the new king mourning his mother publicly. There's something quite disturbing um, about it. But at the same time, again, uh, coming from, you know, being born in Africa, you you celebrate the death and for nine days. So I also understand. But it's, it's very difficult. Mm. I mean, noticeably absent from so much of the conversation uh, around her death was any acknowledgement, really, of the history of the family and a recognition of slavery, of colonialism, of the imperial nature. And I did hear a couple of historians say, you know, that absence really does just tell you everything you need to know about how far we have got to get, because we should already be in a place where we can talk about those things without necessary upset, with just acknowledgement there. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would. But I think the problem was that we, we didn't start the conversation before her her death. Um, and the death, you know, her passing just ignited so many, so many things and triggered so many people. And, and there was indeed a, a kind of monochrome, linear dialogue about, um, about her as a monarch and not necessarily about her links to, to the past, her, her ancestors. Um, because she was, I mean, she, she was a head of state. So it wasn't just about the family mourning. It was a national a national uh, moment of recognition, but also of a moment that we, we could have used to take stock. Mm. But I also, having said that, I also acknowledge that it's very hard to do both at the very same time. Um, people were, exp you know, the queue, the, the famous queue, was told you what you needed to know about what people wanted to, to, to hear about. They didn't want to hear about the past, and yet we needed to talk about it. And would you have felt, well, do you feel safe now as a black female historian making comments like the ones you've just made? Are you slightly worried that there'll be some sort of negative reaction to them? <laughs> there, there's always negative reaction. I'm pretty sure that I'll receive. Um, um, well, having said that, Soas is very, very good at protecting me, um, and and you know, 
taking me away from those those communication or rather protecting the communication around that but but there, there's always always comments and negative comments and I've I've come to terms with that what made me uncomfortable uh, really is the dishonesty and the fact that I want to be criticized as a historian but being criticized because of the color of my skin is something that is incredibly um, reactionary and uh, unpleasant. Yeah. Um, what do you think about the fact that some people in Britain would say we've never been more conspicuously diverse? Look at the cabinet, for example. Uh, look at this amazing cross section of, of talent of all sorts of different ethnicities. This is not a racist country. How can it be? What, what would you say to that? Oh, there are three things at least that I want to address there. It is true where we are now in Britain, it's something to be celebrated. It's, it's a moment to be celebrate, to celebrate simply because I remember an interview some years ago. Somebody asked me, which time in history would you like to have lived? And uh, I mean, for me, it was obvious. It's now because me in the 18th century Britain, I don't know how I would offend it. Um, so this is a beautiful moment, but we shouldn't be complacent because there are still many things that we need to do in terms of teaching that history, many things to do in terms of recognizing that um, there is something called institutionalized racism, systemic racism, that is, you know, that you can see through microaggression at your workplace, that you can see with uh, when when uh, uh, people are not people of African descent or Asian descent are not given the same opportunities, uh, when there's still economic uh, inequalities that are also linked to uh, um, people's uh, racial ethnicity, race and ethnicity. So these are not new things, but completely be oblivious to that is really for me quite dangerous. Is there a major institution in Britain that isn't in some way linked to the slave trade perhaps 100 years ago perhaps 200 300 inherited money what do you think i have a hard time finding any that is not um and this is when this is why i think that we tend to focus for example when you focus on the monarchy um I don't think that it's unfair, but I think that, you know, you need to think about the banking industry. You need to think about big institutions, universities that were funded with uh, money coming from uh, plantation and, slave and slavery. You, need, you think about insurance company, uh, the cultural industry, uh, royal societies and so on and so forth. So we need to have an honest conversation about this, not necessarily finger pointing, but actually say that it was completely, it completely shaped uh, Britain, but also European uh, history and, and, and cultural and social and economic landscape. And that's what, you know, why I talk about being honest and, and, and full disclosure. What do you think about Black History Month as an idea? Should it continue to exist or should we get to a stage where we don't need it? It simply wouldn't be a requirement. Well, I do think we still need it. Actually, there are places where people don't understand or know or want to celebrate or want to talk about black history uh, at all. So there's this one th 
one month of the year is completely uh, insufficient for me. But there are places where they don't even talk about that. So I think it's still much needed. But uh, but this idea that it's only one month, is it, it's a bit strange. Um, Wales has done incredible. I have to talk about Wales because that's my home. They have got done incredible work because there's uh, Black History Month 365. And it's it's all year long. There, there have been a change in the curriculum. This is a first in the United Kingdom, I believe, uh, where you are actually, ch- children will be taught black history, Asian history, and so on and so forth. Um, many things are happening um, as we speak. So I think that there's still much work to, to, to do, to be done. Mm. Do you know what? I, uh, I was amazed to read that black history doesn't have to be in the primary school curriculum, that it's a matter of choice for a school, whether or not they put it in. I mean, it just, it does seem extraordinary uh, that that's still the case. I mean, that just doesn't reflect the makeup of our society, does it? Exactly. And that is a problem. Um, Resistance to teaching that history tells you what you need to know about the the, the kind of uh, legacies uh, the pervasive legacies of the past when we believe that all is well we don't need to learn about these connections with the past and with these connections with the rest of the world that uh, Britain had, uh, had for centuries and what it also tells me is that it's, they, they, they see, people tend to see black history as only um, a history linked to slavery when actually in my book, African Europeans, I'm, I'm showing, I'm demonstrating that uh, the history started a very long time ago. You know, we all know about, you know, the African, uh, well, African Roman Septimius uh, Severus. We know about Roman empires and how diverse it was and how uh, the Roman empire shaped the rest of Europe and, and, and you know, and many other stories. So it doesn't have to start and actually it doesn't start with, with, with slavery. Do you know how many schools do choose to put black history, Asian history, other cultures' history into their lessons? Well, in, in Wales, as I said, it's now compulsory. In England, uh, I don't actually. What I do know in England is that you have uh, social enterprises doing the work, you have non-profit organisations going to school and offering their services, and you have weekend uh, community uh, community uh, houses um, um, offering weekend uh, classes for, for young children about that. And that shouldn't be the case. It should be on the national, well, English national curriculum, rather. Yeah. Uh, would you recommend that let's say uh, someone listening to this is a young woman uh, a woman of color extraordinarily bright really interested in history could you honestly hand on heart recommend a career in academia to that young woman (laughs) i thought you were going to ask uh, looking into history learning about history in academia as it stands i would be wary about this what i would say to them is that you need to be very aware of the uh, the kind of um, obstacles that you you will be facing, and they they are huge. Um, but then again, my parents didn't want me to to go into academia. They didn't want at all. They didn't want me to do history, and I wanted to do it, and I loved it, and and I think it's a beautiful career. When when you know when things work well, really. But have you ever? Well, perhaps you can tell us about the moment at which you were most shocked by the ignorance of a white academic? 
is when I have uh, academics who are working on slavery telling me that uh, maybe I need to, to focus more on the cultural heritage aspect, the celebration aspect, celebratory aspect of black history, and talk about carnivals and, and, and leave the, the hard stuff, uh, meaning archival material and, and, and um, slave owners' diaries to, to them, because after all, it's more to do with their... Um, their communities that that's that's something that tends to shock right me. i mean i'm laughing but only out of a sense of <laughs> so a white person really would say that to you oh yes they have in the past you know it would work better for me i would it was given as a an advice well-meaning advice saying if you talked more about the celebration the music the sport you wouldn't have so many people coming at you and 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 you know uh, trying to abuse you Mm. which is okay well, let's let's put some bunting across this interview and then maybe more people will stay with it um do you feel at all optimistic that maybe in 10 years time in 20 years time if we re revisited this interview we wouldn't have to be talking about the same kind of things and asking you the same kind of questions um i'm generally a huge optimist have to be and I strongly believe that things change but they change at a very slow pace and I would say that it's not just about academia it's the whole of society that needs to change you know we talk about police brutality it has an impact on my work we talk about um, let's say um, um, the NHS and the, the, the disproportionate number of black black women dying in childbirth for example neglect and all that it has an impact on me as a mother, but also on me as a, as a researcher. So I would hope that academia would be better, and I'm convinced it would be better, but the rest of the world, you know, needs to follow for me to really feel comfortable and confident. Can, can money, can bad money be put to good uses? I, I mean, I'm thinking about Bristol University and other institutions that have beautiful buildings named after people who were slave traders i think so i'm convinced that it could it can be simply because there is such a thing as restorative justice restorative justice is about trying to address imbalances trying to um, identify where there are inequalities uh, for everybody um, trying to uh, to support people who are in in the greatest need. Uh, so yes, definitely. I, be I believe I strongly believe in scholarships. Uh, I believe in in support to to help careers and so many other things that can be done. So yes. What um, would you advise for for white people who live in Britain and perhaps for? perhaps through genuinely no fault of their own, they don't know enough about the history of their own country. And by that, I mean they have chosen to or have been allowed to ignore the bad parts. What should they do? I think, you know, there are things that everybody can start at, at their own level. Are there in their communities, in their cities or town or even re regions, were there black people living in there? You know, the local archives are fabulous places to start with. Do they have links with the past, links with um, other parts of the world, um, Asia, Africa? And I, th I think people can just 
try and find out first um, what their own communities, what the kind of links that their own communities had with other communities. Um, and if they're not particularly interested in the past, what they can do is, I always do that, um, I do that with children, um, the origins of spices, of cloth, of all kinds of things that are part of the British uh, cultural and social fabric. It's a fabulous way to, to learn about other people's cultures. And are you now, Oliver, happy? Because, and by happy, I mean happy and in a, I'll, I'll rephrase this. Are you content and protected in your current working environment? Because reading about you, it sounds as though you've had some challenges and that's understating it in the past. Yes, I feel content because this 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 massive um, thing that I had in my chest, in my brain, and um, that was just awful, is gone. I feel relieved, and it's weird to say this, but uh, I feel freer to actually talk about um, talk about Bristol, talk about other universities, because. Um, I feel that, you know, there's no constraint for me as, a, as an employee, but also um, I have a job that I love and, um, and we'll see how it goes at SOAS, but so far, so good. And can I ask you about your students? Do they fill you with joy or do you sometimes hold yes. your head in your hands? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what, that's, and I could say that's the only area where I feel utterly, utterly happy elated they are wonderful young people who are i call them the uh soldiers of love it's the shade's title so one of the shade's songs but they are invigorating they are incredibly positive and they challenge me because many of them think that i'm not radical enough and then that was the case in bath in bristol and so us so, um, yeah, apparently I'm not radical enough. <laughs> that was Dr. Olivet Otelli. And the University of Bristol gave us a statement. It says we are and continue to be extremely proud to have appointed Professor Olivet Otelli to the University of Bristol. We're very grateful to her for the contribution she's made to our community and to the wider city over the last three years. We recognise that this was a challenging time for her and welcome the fact that she's been able to highlight unacceptable behaviours where they exist in our organisation. We are fully committed to addressing those cultural practices that perpetuate the underrepresentation of black academics at our university. But it is important, I think, that we acknowledge that we received this email. Um, we know your name and thank you for providing it, but um, they asked to remain anonymous. I worked for many years at a university in the southwest of England. Racism amongst academic staff was commonplace. An anonymous reporting system was implemented. However, the vice chancellor didn't respond to reports. In fact, they were actively racist themselves, asking for images of people of colour to be removed from marketing materials. I reported racism and discriminatory incidents time and time again, but they were never responded to. In fact, instead I was told to stop going on about it. I ended up having time off due to depression and then resigned shortly after. Universities with entirely white leadership teams do nothing to confront racism, as they are often its worst perpetrators. They hold the power and therefore they can choose to ignore the pain this is causing to thousands of staff and students across the UK. 
Well, that is a really depressing email, and I'm so sorry to that correspondent that they had such a tough time. The more I hear about life on campus and at universities for both students and staff, the more grateful I am that I went a long, long time ago, Jane. Mm. Yeah, I don't think... I don't, racism at university... You, you really would think that institutions that are set up to challenge convention to be places where free thinking and, and free expression that are meant to be full of clever people absolutely clever it's, people it's very disheartening yep. well more than that and um yeah absolutely dismal right um a slightly negative note to end on but nevertheless important to acknowledge it well one final one comes from rosie who says hello girls great listening to your comings and goings in 10 downing street i'm doing the times code word but keeping abreast of the appointments it's like listening to two friends peering out through the neck curtains. I think you'll find that's wooden slatted blinds, but thank you, Rosie. <laughs> that is kind of what we are. We're paid to be the sort of fishwives of News UK. <laughs> no, we're paid to be the questioning fishwives of Times Radio. That's what we are. I think very much so. We're, we're paid to do the radio equivalent of having a cup of tea and dunking your biscuits in it. Yeah, but you have reminded me, I do need to get some glow white. You have been listening to Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Ben Mitchell. Now you can listen to us on the free Times radio app or you can download every episode from wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget that if you liked what you heard and thought, hey, I want to listen to this, but live. Uh, then you can, Monday to Thursday, 3 till 5 at the Times Radio. Yeah. Embrace the live radio jeopardy. Thank you for listening and hope you can join us off air very soon. Goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.